0: Hello and welcome to Series G, the business-focused gaming podcast. This is your host Mustafa and you are listening to episode number 9. In today's episode, we have the privilege of catching up with Matt Frenchman, the co-founder and CEO of Sugar. Matt shares his insights into the venture debt space and how founders can set themselves up for success by efficiently setting up their capital structure. Hey, Matt, thanks for making it onto the show. Really happy to have you on the Series G podcast. Hey,
1: Christopher, thanks very much for having me.
0: So, Matt, before we get started into the discussion topics for today around venture debt, UA funding, and what you're working on right now with your current company, I'd love to get a bit of background on your personal journey and what's brought you to where you are today, because from what I've read online, you've got quite an interesting background. Yeah,
1: certainly is is interesting. I've uh, gone through quite a big career change recently, all for the better. So, I spent most of my career in investment banking at JP Morgan and Credit Suisse, about 16 years actually, working in their equities business, doing lots of IPOs and fundraising. I actually worked on the IPO of King uh, and invested in a few when I worked at a hedge as well. About three years ago, I decided I wanted to do something a little bit different. Quite frankly, I didn't know what that was going to be, but very quickly stumbled on the games world. Now I like finance and metrics and organization and structure uh, and things that grow quickly. And I quickly realized that the games world uh, had all those things to offer and given that I have a finance background I guess I fell into the world of game finance but it was a very happy accident and I've been working in this world for three years now I'm continually amazed at the brilliant businesses I meet the brilliant studios software platforms that I come across and I'm now probably about a year into the launch of Sugar which is a, uh, a financing business for the games and app world
0: So in terms of that background you had in terms of investment banking of course that's a very structured lots of people working within big teams how was that radical shift and basically jumping cold into a different career altogether?
1: Yeah I'm not going to lie, it wasn't an easy transition. Uh, I'm used to a trading floor with lots of hustle and bustle, lots of noise, Huge amount of structure. Uh, I knew exactly what was going to happen at any point of the day, apart from when stock markets do crazy things. So I had to very quickly adapt to meetings in cafes and working on Google Drive and everything being in the cloud, and games conferences and software platforms that quite frankly, I didn't understand, but I had to very quickly get a grasp of. So it was a transition that took a while. And also I was meeting lots of game studios and, and quite frankly, I did speak the same language. You know, my technology and games knowledge wasn't great. So I had to adapt to that and understand 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 how to get by in that world. So it definitely took me a while to get used to. Fair enough. I can definitely relate with that
0: because my background prior to becoming a venture investor in games was involving in the big four accounting firm. So I was really helping larger buy side and sell side clients with financial due diligence engagements. And so coming from that very structured, organized big four background to something so robust and dynamic on a day-to-day basis where you don't quite know what's going to happen was both challenging and refreshing. So even though I was a consumer in the space, having played games for 15 odd years by now, it still took me a while to really get up to speed with what was going on. So I can definitely relate to that. But now going to your banking experience, you of course said that you built a lot of skills and while you didn't speak the same language, a lot of the skill sets you did build, including things like Excel and modeling and financial structure. How has that really influenced what you're doing today
1: with Sugar? Yeah, so a couple of the things from my old world were incredibly useful. So I would regularly meet in a room of about 12 people, the CEO of Vodafone or Tesco, or Netflix or even King. And I was in this ridiculously privileged position that they would be telling me about their strategy on a quarterly basis because I was then speaking to the fund managers at the large pension funds and hedge funds who had investments in them or were potentially looking at investments. So I understood how they thought about their business. I understood, I learned how they dealt with tough times, how they built growth strategies and how structured everything was and how cohesive their teams were. So that allowed me to to get a very small insight into how I thought things should be done. And I loved how long-term these guys thought uh, and how detailed they were about their planning. At the same time, I got to spend time with analysts who would build very detailed spreadsheets on each company they looked at. We're talking Excel models with 30, 40 tabs on them with a huge amount of detail. And I started to build my process in exactly the same way. And that's what I've taken into into Sugar and what I'm doing now. So every meeting, every conversation, every plan, whether it's marketing or go-to-market or onboarding or especially finance, looking at the data and the metrics from a game, looking at how onboarding process should be worked. Everything is incredibly structured and detailed. Uh, My spreadsheets are a mix of a thousand steps to do something to lots of colors and tabs and functions to make sure that I'm not missing out on anything. And I'm very, I'm sort of addicted to building spreadsheets around things. So
0: of course you have a big, big love for Excel and that's incredible. But I think the real key takeaway there is how you build a process around which you're comfortable and can be consistent with. And it just so happens in this case for you, that lives in Excel. How would you potentially encourage or recommend to other founders who are either in the business right now or getting started that are still trying to find their way in building their own processes? What kind of steps can they take to build and get comfortable with their own set of structures and processes?
1: I think they first of all have to think strategically about how they want to plan their business. So what are the things that can go right? And what are all the happy journeys along those steps, whether it's onboarding a customer or signing up to a new platform, getting a new business through the door? And what are the steps for each of those things? But then they just also need to think about, unfortunately, what happens if things go wrong? You know, how do you deal with those things and having a worst case process in place there? And then the second part of that is thinking about what system to do it in. So I like Excel, but some people might want to use Asana or Trello or a Microsoft platform, those sorts of things. So it's about finding whatever software or functionality is going to give them that structure that they can stick to.
0: You know, it's funny that you talk about the strategic benefits or the strategic objectives of the business. And I quite immediately thought of how the banker in you was really coming through in terms of talking about the sensitivity analysis of either onboarding a customer or losing a customer and the kind of approach you would have around each of those different scenarios, which is awesome. Going into sugar a little bit and what it really stands for, let's talk about the UA landscape in the video game ecosystem today, specifically for mobile games, how can startups best prepare for UA spending ahead of launching their games? What kind of framework or guides would you recommend startups build when it comes to setting up those systems, those budgets, and perhaps what kind of platforms they could use, including Sugar? I
1: guess it's important to say at this point, you know, Sugar provides finance for scaling up your game, and mobile lends itself very well to that. You can look at the very similar processes in in console or PC, but for mobile, uh, I think the Days of releasing your game on the app and Google Store and attracting a huge amount of organic installs, unfortunately, are over unless you are a major, major studio with a huge following. For lots of small and medium sized studios that are making great games, and I meet loads of them, you have to be very proactively thinking about what your user acquisition strategy looks like. So, this starts even before you're ready to soft launch the game in Indonesia or New Zealand or wherever you're doing it. What, when you soft launch your game, are you looking to achieve? Is it retention numbers? Is it session length? Are you trying to get your crash rate down? It could be any of those things you also need to be very forward thinking about the attribution provider that you're going to use so when you start spending on ua you need to be able to have one single place to analyze the data how much does it cost you to get an install and how much are you making back and if you're using excel And I love Excel, but you need something a little bit more sophisticated for this. If you don't have something like an app file or an adjust, you don't have a single source of truth, really, for all of your data to know what's working, what's not working. You then also need to make sure you are set up to run campaigns on Google or Facebook or Snapchat or whatever it's going to be. And that requires a lot of preparation. You also need to think about the assets you're going to use. I mean, video is the type of format that works best when you're advertising through Facebook or Instagram, but that's expensive. So if you can't do that immediately, at least know that you have the right assets in place. And then I guess the most important thing is make sure you have an understanding of how to calculate LTV and therefore ROAS, so your return on advertising spend. It's absolutely key that you know for every dollar spent how much you're making back and you must know roughly what are the numbers you're, you're looking for. So if you're a hyper-casual studio, you know that your CPI might be roughly 30 cents and you know that for a game to be successful, you need to break even after two or three weeks. If you're a mid core strategy game, your CPIs are going to be a lot higher and your retention numbers are going to be a lot higher at day 30 than they would be for hyper-casual. So you need to know what are the right benchmarks in the market? And there's some great reports out there, but you have to be very forward thinking about these things. So those are the things I would be focusing on and also be very open to A-B testing lots of things, whether it's wording, whether it's assets, whether it's the pricing structure of your IAPs, you know, you have to be willing to test quickly and then iterate quickly. There's
0: a lot of deep and useful information in there. I want to quickly jump back to the LTV point. Are there any kind of common pitfalls that you've seen while operating your business that studios have been making in terms of the assumption around calculating the LTV and because a lot of those assumptions can then make or break how you view in terms of what kind of UA financing you can provide them.
1: We've looked at many, many iterations of LTV formulae to try and improve our modeling because that's key to what we do. I remember way back when we started with a very simple retention and down model, which was easy to build and we thought would be a great tool to start with. We quickly realized that that was too simple of a model because although the retention numbers can be relatively reliable, your down number can move around quite aggressively from day to day. Whereas a simple retention up-down model is not going to capture those movements. So I think you need something a little bit more comprehensive than that. I would suggest that building a a revenue curve based on historic data and historic behavior is is a very good place to start. And your LTV outcomes are only going to become more accurate the more data you get. So it's a bit like chicken and egg. Your LTV numbers are not going to be accurate until you've had the numbers to put in. And then when you've got the data at the very, very beginning, it's hard to get a very accurate number out of it.
0: And so now when it comes to measuring these KPIs or let's say putting them on a dashboard so it's all within one view, what is the best way to kind of set up that marketing dashboard or KPI dashboard that companies can use to stay on track and be consistent with so that they can basically figure out whether they should increase,
1: maintain, or decrease their UA spending? First and foremost, I would come back to finding the right attribution provider that can give you the flexibility to look at your user acquisition campaigns on a cohort basis, on a geography basis, on a demographic basis. But ultimately, what you need to look at is your CPI and LTV by channel, by region, by demographic, even by device and by country. And it's worth revisiting those numbers daily. And it's worth knowing what your ROAS is by each of those channels. So it ends up being a spreadsheet with probably six or seven metrics that you're testing, but you're testing it by multiple channels, multiple regions, multiple demographics. And you have to know and have the discipline to cut the ROAS, uh, cut the spend in the channels that have got a very bad ROAS. So anywhere where you're spending a dollar and not making a dollar, you really need to be quick to act to cut those channels, unless you spot something wrong in the game that you can adjust quickly that will improve that ROAS.
0: Yeah, but usually that's not the case, right? It's often the times that that channel just isn't the one or isn't capable of pulling its weight. So would you recommend in that case then that the ROAS that is cut from the sort of dead channel is shifted towards a more productive one? Or do you think it's better to filter it to a completely new channel for? further A-B tests.
1: So let's say you had two channels and one was going very well and one was going very badly. You should cut the spend on the bad channel. And my advice would be to allocate 80% of that spend into the channel that's working and then probably take the remaining 20% and test some completely different channels to see if they work. That would be my approach. Yeah,
0: that makes a lot of sense. And in terms of sugar, the whole premise and the thesis of the company is to really build the ecosystem around UA financing and debt financing. Now, to bring the discussion back to a... A much more broad topic, how do you view the ecosystem evolving in present time and as over the years to come in relation to the capital structure of these startups in terms of equity versus debt financing?
1: Yeah. So I was quite shocked when I first came into this world three years ago that the capital structure of most studios was not as balanced as I was used to seeing it from my days, Credit Suisse and JP. So I was used to seeing a balance of equity and debt. And even when I look on the equity side, there aren't many specialist VCs that really understand games and the games ecosystem. Ecosystem. I mean, there are a few very good ones of which you know, there's LVP or Maker's Fund or ones like that, which really know their stuff. But on the debt financing or lending side, you know, many banks won't touch the games world or the app world. Uh, if you wanted to get an overdraft, for instance, that would be very tough. So, given how rich the data is in the games world, actually, your lending decisions can be a lot more accurate than in any other part of the economy, and that's why I think debt finance has to play a much bigger role. Now, that's not to say that a studio should be funding their development or QA or testing of a game with debt. That's probably should be funded by equity. But when it comes to user acquisition, where you know pretty accurately for every dollar spent what you're going to get back, that should be debt funded. Now, I know that a couple of banks are getting more interested in this world, but probably not to the extent of user acquisition funding. They simply recognize that the games world is evolving very quickly and is growing fast. So I think over time, most studios will end up having a much more efficient capital structure as people like ourselves start to offer finance into this world. And
0: so as Sugar gets started with its business operations, what studios fit your criteria or will be eligible to basically acquire this UA funding from you? Is it a certain studio that has been around for certain a number of years or months, or has launched a specific number of games, or is it purely data driven regardless of what stage of the life cycle the company is in?
1: So for us right now, we're a relatively new business but with big ambitions, but we are focused on the UK. We very much plan to expand into Europe and the US, but for us in particular, it's, it's any UK studio. And it doesn't matter if they've been around for a year or 10 years, uh, as long as they have a live game that they are spending user acquisition money on, and they have ambitions to spend more, and they have good metrics. Our underwriting decision, our, our decision to finance a studio is purely, purely based on the data. It doesn't matter whether I like the game, I don't like the game, I know the studio, I don't know the studio. It's all about the data
0: got it that makes a lot of sense because of course then otherwise you're leaving potentially money on the table with those startups that are doing extremely well but perhaps haven't been around for some time to kind of prove their track record but if the numbers speak to you then that's uh, what you really should be going off so in terms of the competition because there are a few other debt providers that have been around in the industry such as Paul and vc or tilting point to name a couple how does sugar plan to differentiate from the competition and be a main provider in this space for the years to come yes
1: So we are, they're very good businesses that you just mentioned and i follow them very closely and I fully respect them. Our models are slightly different in that Holland provides advanced revenues on money that is sitting at the digital stores. It doesn't provide data-driven user acquisition loans the way we do. There's a huge place for what they do, but we just have a slightly different approach. So they're more focused on the AR financing is what you're saying? Yes, exactly. And we, and Tilting Point, is a little bit closer to a traditional publishing model in that they provide you with the finance plus they will publish their game for you and give you UAC services on top. Also, their fee structure is slightly to ours. um, Whereas we look at things in exactly the same way as the studios look at it. We focus on the ROAS or the relationship between LTV and CPI. And our technology makes instant decisions based on exactly what the studios are seeing in their UA channels. And that is a big point of differentiation.
0: That is awesome. And before we wrap up, is there anything you think on a macro level, the industry or maybe the mindset of developers or even VC investors has to change in order to further embrace the UA debt
1: facility side? I think people need to realize that taking on a loan is, is not a bad thing. If you have good metrics and you have a game that's going well, taking on a loan in a careful way with a provider who understands your studio is actually a good thing to do. We're not saying debt's better than equity. We're not saying that you can't have both. We're simply saying we think it's a very efficient way to grow. And because it's an underused way of financing studios, it's, it's relatively new to the games world. Well. We think it's just going to take time to raise awareness. And that would be my main takeaway that taking on debt is not a bad thing when you have a game that is producing very good metrics awesome
0: and finally to wrap up the question part here what
1: kind of games are you playing today so it's a mixture of games I play on my mobile when I'm on the tube uh, and games I play at home with my son so on the tube I play Plank by Quali which I think has been out for about a year now I'm completely addicted to it and then there's another game called King of Crabs which is made by a studio that sits right behind me in my uh, games incubator that I'm based in in Farringdon and then the game I play with my son which infuriates me because he's much better than me is Star Wars Battle and I can't I cannot get the hang of it but it's great
0: well that's awesome to hear Matt well I really appreciate you taking the time to come on to series U today it was awesome having you as a guest and really looking forward to seeing what sugar does in the years to come brilliant thank
1: you very much for having me
0: And that concludes this week's episode of Series G, the business-focused gaming podcast. I hope you all did enjoy listening to Matt's insights on the venture debt in the game space, as well as how new founders can go about setting up their processes for success. Head over to www.seriesgblog.com to listen to other podcasts such as this one and to catch up on essays on the game space that I have posted there. Thank you all for listening and I will catch you next time. Stay frosty.